0: Hello, we are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, researchers, and other experts, which impact the ever-changing social world we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land where we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belong to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are privileged that we can welcome you to today's conversation.
1: Hi everyone. On today's episode of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics, there is a mature content warning, so viewers should be advised. Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer, and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics. My awesome guest today is Aaron Thompson. Aaron is a master's student here in our sociology program, and he's had a fascinating trajectory to get here. First, he received his bachelor's degree in journalism and media studies from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and then he went into work in the English as a second language or ESL world for about 10 years before coming to ASU for his master's. Currently, he's doing really fascinating work in the Arizona Youth Identity Project right here at ASU. I'm so excited to find out more about him. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you, Aubrey.
1: It's a pleasure to be here today. Yeah, so the podcast starts and ends the same way. I'm going to ask you sort of three rapid fire questions. These introductory ones are just going to be icebreakers to get to know you better on a circus level. And then the ending ones are just to get quick bites of your personal philosophy. The point is just to kind of answer them off the cuff with about a sentence. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. So my first question for you, Aaron, is what is your favorite late night snack
2: yeah before the pandemic uh i would probably say like ice cream during the pandemic it became like these little choco snacks from south korea uh, Mm -hmm. called choco snack i guess is their name and then um trying to get healthy now it's uh naval oranges so
1: all right good transition all right question two is what is your favorite animal
2: Yeah, thinking about this one really quick, probably like chimpanzees, uh, because like, as a child, my first toy was this little chimpanzee and also being surrounded by like, I don't know if people will remember Curious George, but yeah, like that had an impact in there too. Uh, There's something that I was like watching about this idea of the, um, was it like the Mandala effect? where you don't remember or you do remember facts in the past properly or improperly. And something that was really interesting to me was like this idea that Curious George never had a tail versus Curious George having a tail. I remember him having a tail, but I guess he's never had a tail. So Mandela effect in action, I suppose
1: yeah clearly you're from the parallel universe where curious george did have a tale and then something happened where you know these universes broke apart and then you know now you're remembering from your parallel universe which makes a lot more sense than just you know people kind of collectively misremembering something right
2: yeah i'm gonna give a lot of shout outs to like media that i absorb and that (laughs) i really enjoy because you know as a sociology student, my life is based doom scrolling. So with that being said, I try to immerse myself in things that are sort of odd and relevant in the like entertainment media sphere. And first thing uh, about the Mandela Effect is uh, from this HBO show called, uh, was it like How To With John Wilson? Highly recommend it. There's an entire episode about the Mandela Effect. That's um, He's just this filmmaker in New York who just, tries to figure out something, and it takes him on these crazy adventures uh, where he, like, ends up at a Mandela Effect uh, conference in a hotel in, like, the middle of nowhere, and, uh, yeah, that's been something that's been on my mind is, well, what do I remember correctly versus what I remember incorrectly, but, you know, as we know, as social scientists, human memory is pretty fallible. Like, we remember things very poorly as a whole, so.
1: Yeah. All right, Aaron, so my third question for you is, who is the funniest person that you know?
2: I lived in LA uh, for about seven years before I moved to Baltimore where I live now. And I did get to meet a lot of people in the comedy industry and someone that, again, because of that media thing I have to mention is uh, my friend and, and former colleague in Las Vegas and a journalist named Julie Seba, And she just put out this incredible documentary called Too Soon. Uh, comedy after 9-11 and you can watch it on vice and it's amazing it's about how comedy has adapted after 9-11 and it's really relevant because it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and she's hilarious like you don't get to see and hear her humor directly but you can see how she says she's absolutely hilarious um one of the also uh, best journalists i think i i've met in my uh short but prolific journalism career so
1: that is awesome. So this transitions pretty well into starting to talk about, you know, your life as a professional and sort of your journey towards getting your master's. So you got your bachelor's degree in journalism, and then you sort of ended up in the ESL world. Talk to me a little bit about that transition. How did that come about?
2: So yeah, I've always been interested in, in like meeting and, and talking to people um, as a kid. I was called like the radio by my grandparents because i just I love to talk to people and figure out their stories so i went into uh studying journalism at unlv and uh graduated with it but at the same time while i was studying it uh i managed to get a, a job starting as an internship that ultimately ended up as a you know staff position at las vegas weekly which is an alternative weekly in las vegas and i worked there for about three years worked there through graduation after graduation and then about so i've been like four years and then like in 2000 late 2008 i made a shift and went to another magazine or another alt weekly in las vegas called las vegas city life and i was there doing the same thing covering the same kind of subjects that were you know really interesting to me like music art culture underground culture deviant cultures being in las vegas there's more than enough of that to like, listen to and, and find out about. And then in January of 2009, uh, you get that meeting with the publisher that said, Hey, our revenues are dropped. And sorry, you know, you're onward. So I freelanced for a little bit, um, from January till about June, trying to find a new job. But you know, in the recession, this is like the beginning and the harshest part of the recession, not a lot of journalism jobs, a lot of journalism companies were like heavily invested in real estate. So they're slashing everything. And ultimately, like, I got headhunted by some firm out of Korea. That's like, hey, you have applied English experience. That's really cool. You are a professional writer. That's really cool. How would you like to come and teach in South Korea for a year? And, you know, like, I didn't really have any job prospects at that time. Like, I think I my interview before I took that was with some like community paper at the LA Times which it does not exist anymore and uh yeah basically from there like I got the job offer when I was covering Coachella for a, a bunch of magazines in Vegas and I'm I'm there with my editor at the time just like hey I'm just going to Korea and it's only going to be like a one year thing and just going to try to you know experience life somewhere else and try to make it because you know being in las vegas i'm from las vegas i was born in las vegas and i had a like a social structure that you know and a safety net that i could always rely on because my family is like a third generation family in las vegas like we go back to like the early 50s and i just wanted to try something new and yeah one year turned into four years and eventually i moved back in uh, 2013 so
1: That is so fascinating. So when you moved to Korea, did you know any Korean?
2: No, I did not. Um, I actually so as a journalist, I love, you know, surreal, strange stories. Like, again, my beat in Vegas was covering the most underground of the underground I could find. And I wanted to have this surreal, shocking experience. So I intentionally did no prep about Korea. Like, I just wanted to show up and see if I could survive. And uh, so I I knew very little, if any, Korean. I knew that, like, South Korea was um, a big country and different than North Korea. I mean, I had seen some Korean movies in the past and whatever, but I I virtually knew nothing. So my first day getting off the plane in this brand new world um, where there's as much neon as Vegas at the time, too, it was like okay, it's like Vegas. And then when I get dropped off the bus and my boss isn't there to pick me up, I'm like, oh, yeah, no one speaks English around here, I don't think. Um, This is 2009. And I'm like, I'll just figure something out. And eventually he came, he picked me up. But yeah, I was completely fresh. Like I wanted to have this surreal, intense experience. And it wasn't that intense. It was just more of like, curiosity, like, okay, cool. Well, let's see what I can do. And eventually, like, after four years, my Korean got Pretty solid. Um, unfortunately, when we moved back, or when I moved back in two thousand thirteen, I moved back to Arizona to Phoenix, and there was not the level of a uh, Korean infrastructure in Phoenix at the time I moved back in two thousand thirteen. So I like forgot everything. Okay. Yeah,
1: I mean it happens, right? But yeah. that is super cool. So where were you located when you were living in Korea?
2: I was in Daegu, which is like the third largest city in Korea um it's more or less in the center of the country i was there for two years and then i took a job with the uh with the korean high school working for the government um in seoul which is like the capital um and yeah those are two places i was at that's
1: super cool so so oh, then you decided to come back to the states and then what were the career um you know prospects like for you? Did you know that you wanted to kind of continue to be teaching English or were you trying to go back to journalism? Where was kind of uh, your head at when you came back to the states?
2: Yeah, you know, I was I came back feeling very empowered in a lot of areas but also very like I like to call it like buffet syndrome where you're you have all these choices but you don't know what to get. So you just end up getting the things you are comfortable with. But um, I had a little bit of savings. So I did wait um, to find jobs. But yeah, I tried to find journalism jobs. And in Arizona, at the time, there really wasn't much hiring in early 2013. For that, I um, ended up settling working for a uh, mortgage servicer just as a way to make some some cash. And I was really good at this job. But I hated every minute of it. Um, it's you know as someone who now studies disparity and and studies systemic issues i i feel like um when i was working as a mortgage servicer having to talk to people about foreclosure and how they can lose their homes and all that stuff like i really wanted to help them but at the same time it's like i'm just a part of the system now that's not punk rock you know
1: huh. It's so interesting because hearing you talk about, you know, all of your different experiences, it seems like you've always really viewed everything around you with this like sociological lens, Uh, because it sounds like you've always really been interested in sort of the way that people operate and the way that people are interacting with each other. So it seems like it makes sense that you would eventually end up doing sociology.
2: Yeah, yeah, as a journalism major at UNLV, my minor was sociology in, in the first part, and I took it because it seemed most applicable to what I wanted to tell stories about. You know, most journalists, and again, I want to be a print journalist, so, um, you know, print for those of you who read our newspapers and things that you pick up, not on the internet. And uh, anyway, like, so... I took sociology classes because I wanted to focus and tell stories about people who don't have their stories told. People who, you know, are not represented in the media and in the news. So and I had some great like sociology instructors who gave me access to these communities or helped like widen my like sociological imagination as what as, as you know C Wright Mills likes to explain, to think more about how can I represent these people you know, well, and talk about their story. And, you know, so my, my main area really in underground culture and stuff was focusing on, focusing on what we would define as deviant subcultures, which in Las Vegas, there's a lot to work with. But also the lens of deviance is very different compared to other cities and other places.
1: Right. Uh, I can imagine that deviant behavior in, like, Milwaukee is probably just, you know, a, a day in Vegas, Right.
2: Yeah. And, you know, so at UNLV, there was um, a few really amazing researchers. There still are a few who work really heavily in in deviance, but the one who was more like the person who set me on the direction that I wanted to study was a man named Frederick Preston, who a lot of his work involved um, working with like cowboy communities and, and cattle rustler communities, um, he wrote an entire book about, but he also liked to focus on BDSM communities in Las Vegas as well. And uh, during one of our classes, he actually brought um, in one year, he brought BDSM practitioners to class. I wasn't there for that one, but in my core or in my group, he actually brought in nudists. And it's just so interesting to just hear them talk about and hear them rationalize, as we say, their behavior. And it, it it's always been kind of this focus, this lens. Even when I was a journalist, it's just Focusing on telling the stories about people and and really finding out, well, these groups of people in particular, what are their shared norms? What are their values that they find to be important? You know, what are their values that they think are deviant to them and so forth as well? I mean, I could probably talk about BDSM and the weird Vegas like punk rock and, and metal and, and music cultures like all day, but that's probably... Well, maybe people would want to hear about that. Tune in for the next podcast about
1: that. (laughs) Yeah, we'll do a separate podcast where we um, explicitly talk about uh, BDSM and punk rock uh, only. So um, going back to kind of your work in ESL, uh, you've had a lot of um, experience working closely with international students. Talk to me a little bit about that. Was that like when you worked with international students, it seems like when you talk about it that there were some like eye-opening moments for you like hearing them talk about their experiences and sort of helping um international students get adjusted to life in the states
2: yeah yeah that that's a great point to kind of go off on is I, i i lived that experience to some extent now granted like i'm an american i'm white and i have blonde hair blue eyes so even in foreign countries, specifically in Asia, I am afforded a certain level of privilege that other minorities and other individuals don't have. Um, but still, living in another country, being a stranger in another country, there are, you know, mental and, and psychological and, and personal challenges every day in order to cope. You know, like from the simplest thing, like what am I going to eat for lunch? How do I communicate what I want to? this person who's going to take my order. So I get the right thing versus like, oh, I'm having an emergency. I need to talk to a doctor to, you know, solve this problem. I broke my arm and collarbone and and then my, like my, um, my cream was good enough. that I could communicate, but I think about the, if I couldn't communicate what would happen. So when I came back to the United States and I got back into the ESL industry, I took about a year off from that it became really important to me to give people the power to communicate um, because we know communication is a very powerful tool also for survival. And dealing with um, students from other countries, you know, in in L.A., it's a very diverse group, but, you know, we would have students who, you know, were coming in to study for university. We were a language school, so a lot of our students were trying to improve their scores, like the TOEFL, the test of. English as a foreign language or IELTS, I don't know the acronym for that one, as well as I wish I did. Uh, IELTS is mainly only for European countries, not so much like TOEFL, but, you know, so getting to know international students wants and needs and hopes is really fun, but then when life happens, seeing and trying to help students um help themselves was always really inspiring and delightful but also really like brutal in some cases too we we i had one student he um really nice really nice young guy but you know being in la um first of all he was he was a member of the lgbtq committee and in he's also like japanese and vietnamese so he already has a lot of stigma from his family he had to keep himself in the closet so to speak from his family comes to the United States, starting with West Hollywood gets involved in some of the wrong communities. And next thing we know, he's disappeared. And we don't know where he's at. So using my journalism skills, I track him down, I find out that he was in jail. Um, he had been arrested for possession. And turns out like when we we did get to talk to him and, and find out what was going on with him. He had gone into this like abusive relationship with a partner who was um, you know pimping him out and it was really rough and those are the hardest because I knew this student before he came to our school through another school and you know I was really trying to get a hold of his people get a hold of his parents and really help him come back to you know the world as he knew it and we did end up getting him help we we ended up um, finding a nice like low-cost affordable treatment program for him and uh, suffice to say I, I believe he's doing okay but You know, with addiction, as you know, social scientists, listeners out there will know is so multifaceted, you never really know you're never really okay. You're just living with it. So
1: Right. That uh, story really resonates with me as someone who is queer, right? I can imagine how difficult it must be. What, you know, I mean, and I I have experienced what it's like when you have a family who isn't fully accepting of yourself and your identity. And I'm sure um, going to a new place, wanting to find a group that you identify with, I mean, it, puts you in a position where you're incredibly vulnerable. So, um, you know, I think it's really, you know, it's really good on you that you were able to sort of track the student down and, you know, try to get him out of that situation. I mean, that really like, as someone who is like not a family member or friend, I mean, like that, that probably wasn't your responsibility, but it is really, I think speaks well that you were willing to do that for someone. So uh, I thought that was very cool to hear.
2: You know, as When I was in Korea, it was always imparted upon us by our leadership as well as by, you know, advocates as like, you know, be a resource for help and change within the community. Because again, the being in a monocultural society like Korea, the lens is always on you if you're not like Korean. So you want to be a good ambassador, right? Always. That was always what, you know, our leaders and the education programs would tell us. And then you know, coming to the United States, I wanted to just continue to be that sort of good role model for international students so I could help them their day to day lives, but also, you know, give them safety nets that maybe they wouldn't have. I mean, the, the kind of we, we don't want to make it sound just, but the most common problem, though, with international students in Los Angeles was trying to keep the you know, Church of Scientology away from them or other um sort of fringe religions away from international students because they recruit really heavily with international students because they have a lack of connections they have lack of ties and they're easier to sort of segment away from um from like general groups and that was always pretty interesting when uh student would come and say hey i got this flyer and it's, um, you know, it's a flyer from, you know, Scientology Group, which, you know, is really prevalent in Los Angeles, specifically in Hollywood and going, yeah, do you want to be in the industry? No, you just stay away from them. And, you know, it's like stuff like that, like any pitfall. Again, when you're in a critical population, no matter if you're an international student or no matter if you're in a, you know, what we call a disparate population or, you know, you're a member of a a minority group or any of these kind of groups in general, there's so many pitfalls. And it's just really trying to navigate people away from them so they don't end up in situations that ultimately could be, you know, horrifically life changing. That's a responsibility that I feel as a person. But now, as I become someone who's interested in social science, figuring out the systemic ways to minimize these pitfalls or figure out the systemic issues around them so I can tackle these pitfalls with colleagues and team members to try to make a a better, subjectively better society.
1: Right. It reminds me of uh, that sort of metaphor story, I'm about to butcher something that I was told many times in my uh, uh, educational career. Um, But I think the metaphor is described as like, there's this running river and um, this person and, and there's these children that are like floating down the river and this guy sees them and he's like, oh my God, there's these children in the river and he's going and he's trying to save each individual child. And then eventually he reaches the point where he's like, okay, like, why why are there all these children in the water and then he sort of walks up the stream to you know tackle that problem and it sounds like you've sort of had a similar thing where you know you're sort of doing this work at the individual level which is incredibly important right like i'm in no way discrediting that at all but there's got to be a point where we sort of look at the system and we go okay why? Why are there so many individuals who are going through this experience? And it sounds like that's something that has really informed a lot of your perspective,
2: right? And yeah, you know, it's, it's speaking to that too, a, a little job that I had between L.A. and uh, Phoenix, I was working at the Pride Guide, which is a LGBTQ travel magazine. I was a ad salesperson at this magazine. It's based out of Phoenix, and. Um, you know, one thing that was really important to me, again, because I like to tackle these big issues was, well, we know that, you know, LGBTQ access to healthcare is a huge issue. Um, and my market was specifically like rural Colorado. So rather than just go after the easy sales, I would approach every single like doctor, or every single provider and reach out to and say, Hey, you should advertise to this community if you're comfortable working in the communities because it's like these little systemic and these little individual actions that can have huge wide-ranging changes i mean again we we think about like this idea of the activist sociologist um which is what you know i think we need at this time frame that we're living in i mean 2020 uh has basically just been a magnifier of all the social inequities that are in our society and you know at this point for those of us who are interested in academic sociology this is really a chance where we can make an impact to really change things and understand them and promote like a new era i mean i was really optimistic in my essay that i wrote to get in the program i said this is the new golden age of of social science research we're at the beginning of it but this is it you know we just need to make sure that we get funding for it so what's up nih you know
1: yeah No, that's beautifully said, Aaron. Um, I do want to take a minute to highlight some of the work that you're doing right now. So can you tell me a little bit about the Arizona Youth Identity Project and what your role has been on that project? So yeah, the
2: Arizona Youth Identity Project is this amazing program um, that the Sanford School has been heading up. It's a project that is trying to understand the political, social, and racial identities of young people in Arizona um, it's really interesting I highly recommend anyone listening to this take a look at their webpage, which you can find on the Sanford site but uh, basically the idea is uh, comes from like the principal investigator which is Dr. Flores Gonzalez and you know the co-investigators Dr. Emira Estrada out of ASU Dr. Angela Gonzalez out of ASU Dr. Nathan Martin out of ASU and then also you know you got michelle Teles out of nau and uh Annabel at- dr atkin who just left uh, for purdue which we're really sad about and um you also have like dr posco involved in there dr michelle posco and i don't want to leave anyone else off on it but what makes it really interesting at the end of the day is that this work is really just it's one of the largest sociological projects in the country and now it's a qualitative project not a quantitative project so the end goal is to interview you know more than 300 young individuals in Arizona about their race about their identity about their political identity about their social identity and at the end of the day what does it really mean to be an American um there are a bunch of research questions that we're looking at my work I came in later involved in it um I joined it as a class uh because I want to get more research experience and I talked to my advisor who, you know, I was really lucky that this class was going on online using sync, ASU sync at the time. I'm an ASU online student. So typically, I wouldn't have this opportunity short of having to come to Arizona and take the physical class. So I got really lucky that I was able to join this class and learn about like qualitative coding, interviewing, and I became a research assistant for it in the summer. Uh, doing interviews for the third wave. Uh, This is a longitudinal study. And, you know, the research is really fascinating. There's some really, really important things that we're finding out about people. And, you know, we're going to be publishing and writing about it. Uh, We're writing about it right now. There's a ton of stuff out there. I mean, they're going to be looking at the data. We're going to be looking at this data for years. Uh, There's just so much because it's a qualitative, longitudinal study of, you know, more than 300 individuals with, you know, some of them interviewing three times, um, and it's just really interesting because we're we're finding out that you know things are changing very quickly, um, especially with identities and attitudes in Arizona, which could potentially generalize to other Western states or other um, more you know conservative states as well. I, I can't really go into too many of the results yet, uh, but I'd say just keep an eye out. Uh, stuff will be coming soon.
1: Yeah, that sounds like that is a great opportunity that you were able to be involved in during grad school. So as we're starting to wrap up, um, one of my questions is what's next for you? So, um, you know, I think you mentioned previously that you're starting to think about applying to PhD programs. Where are you at um, with that? Are you thinking of going to the private sector? Where are you at with, uh, you know, what your next step is gonna be? if i have any regrets
2: about signing up for a master's program during the pandemic and i kind of did it sort of yeah you know, seeing the world kind of falling apart in front of your eyes being someone who's always had this social sociological sphere and lens uh, i didn't really look into i just wanted to take a class and classes and i was working full-time at the time so i picked the ASU program and and a little later realized that was more of a terminal program, which means, you know, it's not really geared for those who are necessarily interested in like long-term academic study into PhD programs. Um, I should have done a little better homework, but that's fine. I've had great opportunities and I've definitely learned a lot in my, you know, year and a half there. I've taken probably more classes than I have in most of my life. But in terms of the next steps are, so I'm graduating A, so I, I am interested in the, phd track um i'm really interested in applying to you know various schools and and stuff like that studying areas of like what i'm interested in which is you know digital disparity in particular because i was running an esl school during the pandemic um also studying elements of you know media and political information and identity in terms of well how was the media as we know it changing people's political identities. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there to go for. So, you know, I, I've got my hands full. I got to find uh, some some cool schools. I'm, I'm hoping, you know, now that I live in Maryland, there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of schools out here. So we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, I think that that sounds great. And, you know, I have a ton of colleagues who entered their PhD program post-masters. And honestly, it's the post-masters students who kill it the most in the PhD programs. And that's a little bit of a self-roast because I came in pre-masters. But it really is. I mean, when you go crazy. No, I love it. It's just it's incredible. I mean, every colleague I have who came in post-masters, they just kill it absolutely and it's because you go in knowing what you want to do you've got all of this experience and it's it's just incredible so Aaron I have no doubt that you're gonna find an awesome home wherever you end up and ASU has been so lucky to have you while we have so
2: it's fun to be back at ASU Um, it's different obviously I did my first year uh, of my undergrad at ASU uh in like 2003 and it's interesting to be back uh, when I signed up for the classes again I have one of the really old legacy like, emails that's like your full name um, when I had to call help desk about that they're like wow you have one of those really old emails that hasn't <laughs> ported it over it's like yeah um, can you fix that but yeah it's you know really what it comes down to is as social scientist, no matter where you are, if you want to be, you know, if you're interested in the more clinical area of social science, which is super important, more important now than ever, that's really awesome to just keep yourself centered. And same as if you're interested in the research and, you know, academic aspect is keeping sense self-centered too, because remember, we're, we're dealing with people and People are unique, and they're layered, and there's so much going on between individuals as well as groups, and we just have to take care of the people we research and the people we help with. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess I get a little bit of uh, some slack because I'm interested in, you know, big. I I don't want to work with, like, I don't want to be a social service provider or any of that at this time, but I still want to... Understand, so we can help everybody, but also so we can understand how things are changing. And I, I got to give some a shout out to how amazing ASU has been in terms of promoting really the values of modern sociology. Um, something that's amazing about Arizona Youth Identity Project is is that it's female and POC led, which is incredible. Is you know for a project this size, having those kind of I want to say those factors and elements being so important to the leadership is so cool. And and ASU's leadership of the division right now is, you know, currently female and POC led. And it's really, I think, a great way of showing that, you know, sociology gets a lot of flack and rightfully so that it's a social science study made by old white European men. And it does deserve that flack. It really does. And this next stage of sociology i think is really going to be interesting and amazing and and really helpful for society as a whole because now we do recognize uh as social scientists we recognize things that are different than old white capitalist archetypes you know that's cool and being a part of that is very inspiring but it also means to again me being a white male uh in this program it also means that hey i gotta i definitely got to step up my own game because i can't just get by by being a white dude anymore in academia right
1: i love that that was beautifully (laughs) said aaron so we're gonna start to transition out and i'm gonna give you our three final questions. So these are the questions where I'm really going to try to get just a little bit more in your personal philosophy. Okay. So my first question for you is who or what motivates you?
2: Ooh, that's a really good question. I, I think what motivates me, it, it's more of like a what motivates me than a who. What really motivates me is just this drive to do the best I can on anything I can. And yeah, I fail all the time. Failure happens. Accept it. You know, like if there's anything I can say to any future graduate students or future college students, hey, failure happens, accept it and learn from it and move on. So it's really just the drive to just want to do uh, more than anything, you know, like, I can't stand still, I can't stay still. Even like that I'm just a full-time student right now, I can't handle it. Like I'm running analysis on my own, I'm doing crazy things with, you know, wave four data, um, I'm breaking my computer with SPSS just for fun, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, it's just do, you know, that's my motivation is just to do, I guess is the best way to say.
1: Yeah, I love that. So my second question for you is, what has been your proudest moment in grad school?
2: Mm. You know, that's a really good question. Our program is so short, so we don't have a lot of opportunities to really get ingrained into anything. I mean, again, talking about Arizona Youth Identity Project, I got really lucky on this one. I talked to my advisor and i got involved in the program which is really cool a lot of there aren't a lot of opportunities like that but when i think about what I'm, I'm most proud of with that is really being able to contribute in a small part to this incredible project um just you know even from interviewing and, and coding to now being able to work on this paper um or work on one of these several papers coming out It does make me really proud because, you know, the the focus has been on Arizona politically since the 2020 elections. How did Arizona go blue? It's not really blue. It's purple. We know that. And it's like stuff like that being a part of this project that can potentially answer a question like that and how individual activist groups have influenced, uh, and this is in the media, about how individual activist groups really help influence and push voting in Arizona, where the party, admi- admi- sorry, the party infrastructure, the Democratic Party infrastructure in Arizona just kind of didn't, uh, that's also really cool. So I'm just proud to be a part of that, but also proud to be a part of such a cool and great program that is in flux, that is in transition, as just doing all the right things in terms of Uh, you know sociological study which is a controversial field that ruffles a lot of political feathers and uh, is being cut at other institutions because it's not like necessarily a productive quote unquote science and you know we could talk about the you know debate between like qualitative research versus quantitative research which appears to be like people still want quantitative research right but what we're hoping again, and what is being hoped in the Arizona Youth Identity Project is that it will be a part of something that shows, hey, qualitative research can matter just as much as quantitative research. And yeah, if I don't get a publisher credit, let's say my paper gets rejected or, you know, let's say worst comes the worst, like I have to drop out of the program. Even being a small part of that is something that I, and I think I can speak for the fellow students and parts of the class and say we're really proud of because it has a direct impact on what's going on in Arizona in particular.
1: That was beautifully said. It's clear that you have a lot of passion for this work, which is fantastic. So yeah, will you succeed. So my final question that we're gonna end on, Aaron, is what is one rule that you would want everyone to follow?
2: Like everyone in the world or everyone in general?
1: Just everyone, however you want to interpret everyone.
2: You know, so I just moved to Baltimore and I'm from Las Vegas and I'm I'm from, I lived in LA and, you know, people have very, I've lived in all these general places and something that I really love out here in Maryland is this general rule. I I can't, you know, this is a, a family podcast, I suppose, so I can't really say how I want to, but it's just people are not jerks to each other. People are pretty kind and pretty nice to each other, at least superficially. Yeah, that's cool. Like, be nice to each other. Be kind to each other. Don't be a jerk, you know?
1: I think Um, don't be a jerk is a great rule to live by, so. Uh, This has been a fantastic interview. I've been so happy to have you on, Erin, and this has just been a joy so thank you so much if you're interested in more of the work that Aaron does or if you're interested in contacting him his information is going to be below in the show notes so thank you all for listening Have yeah and one. just
2: and one last thought in that too is and if you are interested in learning more about Arizona Youth Identity Project please visit our website in the Sanford School page and you'll be able to find a bunch of really cool stuff in there. Again, I I only speak this as someone who's just a part of it. But man, we are doing great stuff. Um, and again, it really comes all thanks to the PIs involved in this. I mean, they're heroes. Like, they really are heroes of sociology. So visit that. And thank you for listening to my rants, y'all.
1: All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.
0: Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting thesanfordschoolasuedu forward slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. This conversation has come to an end, but our work here continues.